Hello there, and welcome back. We are back after a long break. I appreciate your patience in waiting as we took care of some of the other things that come along with academia, writing papers, making deadlines, trying to get grant funding, etc. cetera. Uh, raising a puppy, in my case, which I'm not sure if all of the work uh, in the office is what has these huge bags under my eyes, or if I'm allergic to my own dog. But either way, we've covered a lot of ground since we last talked, and we've got a fantastic guest to come back with. We have Dr. Erica Merriweather on the show today. She was a visiting scholar from NYU, and she's getting ready to start a new project that's funded by a K Award. She's called upon Price for some of the mentorship in the application of her pain science. She's got a very interesting background. So if, like me, you like the guests when they talk about how they got to where they are and, and some of the life experiences and choices that they made and how they developed into the scientists they are, then you're going to love this episode. She has a very diverse background, and we talk about everything from her mother, who also has a PhD, and some of the ways that she was involved with her mother and community organization uh, all the way up through athletic training, a doctorate of physical therapy, and then she got into pain research. And this new project is unique, and it, it, it integrates all of those facets as she focuses in on a population of people who have had a bariatric surgery, uh, which is on their stomach, to counteract obesity, and looking at how pain and race plays into uh, that chronic pain state that goes along with obesity. Very interesting stuff. I had a blast talking to her. She's, uh, like I said, at NYU in the Department of Physical Therapy, and I want to look down so I make sure that I get this right, but she's the director of the Inclusive and Translational Research in Pain, Research in Pain Laboratory, ITRIP. And once you hear her story, that will make perfect sense to you. So, I've talked enough. Let's get on and hear from Dr. Erica Merriweather. Welcome to The Price of Pain, Brought to you by the Pain Research and Intervention Center of Excellence at the University of Florida. Let's join host Dr. Joshua Crow in conversations with scientists, healthcare providers, and industry professionals as we delve into the highly subjective experience of pain and the ongoing effort to reveal its influence on our everyday lives. There, there are a number of, of careers that I would have been very happy with and that I would look at as you know what, that's something I could have done for my career. I would have loved being an athletic trainer. Oh. I, I was considering going to PT school. Okay. Um, I have a PhD. Well, you did all those things. I <laughs> so took your life. You did. <laughs> if, I, if I had just met you sooner where you could be like, oh, you should go and do this, and then we'll go do this later. Hmm. Um, but you started as an athletic trainer. I did. You played sports when you were younger. You said you I played did. basketball. Is that what got you in that direction? Yeah, so I've always been fascinated with movement, um, the concept of physical movement, how to, you know, push my body to the limits of, you know, doing these, you know, insanely highly kinesthetic things without really thinking about it. Um, and how how does that happen? And later on, you know, what happens when you can't do basic movement? Um so this concept of movement has kind of permeated my life. Um, and the idea of social justice movements. Mm. Um, I've been, I was pretty much born into that. Um, my parents were very active in their respective communities. My mother was a community organizer. I went to protests, 
did lobbying, that type of thing. As as a child, as were a you child. doing that as a child? Wow. Yeah. Can we? All right. Look, I, I do want to talk about the athletic training, the PT, but but what was that like? I mean, and, and are, the, are these in, in cities and whatnot as well? I mean, you're with a lot of people. And... Yeah, so this was this is Chicago. Okay. Um, so my mother, um, now she had always been, you know, active in some form of social justice stuff in college, but her community activism really ramped up around the building of the White Sox Stadium. Um, so old, the old Comiskey Park was a landmark, um, but there were communities around it that were uh, impacted by the building of this huge new stadium. And so my mother uh, was part of a community organizing group to stop the demolition of uh, old Comiskey Park, but also to... Um, to minimize or or not have these people displaced from their homes mm-hmm. uh, so we would go to uh, some of the you know some of the you know more economically under-resourced areas of the city we we too lived in an economically under-resourced area of the city but we went to other places and so my mother's like five five maybe 115, 20 pounds at (laughs) this time. And and she just steps in these spaces unafraid um, and and taught me to be that. Um, I'm like, why are we going in here? It's like, well, we're doing, you can't be afraid of your own Mm. people. Um, So we would do, we go to planning meetings and disrupt them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Could I interject? I'm sorry to interrupt. And forgive me my ignorance on this, because I'm I. We had talked about this a little bit earlier. I went from living out in the cornfields, essentially. Like it's not like I'm a farm boy, but like I came from a small town in Michigan and moved from there to this, not the affluent part of town, but this very wealthy affluent part of Southwest Florida of all places. I moved to Naples. You know, are you familiar with Naples? A little bit. We were on the other side of the tracks, but. Naples, nonetheless, you know, very, you know, money driven and sorry for my, you know, Naples audience people, but, you know, (laughs) superficial and really, you know, Mm -hmm. um, so I want to ask, uh, I I have probably a lot of questions that are going to come from a place of ignorance on this, but when you're talking about the people who were displaced by, by the, the building of the new park and I assume businesses, you know, disrupted and whatnot as Mm -hmm. well, are, can can that be encompassed by saying minority families or is it a socioeconomic class more so or a mix of both um so there were working class families that uh were from racialized groups mm-hmm. um so chicago then and now is very segregated along the grid okay um and so that part of the south side the you know, low, what they call the low end, mm-hmm. where the numbers are low okay. <laughs> uh, for my non-Chicago folks. <laughs> um, so on that part, in that part of the city, yes, it, it the many of the, the families were working class families, um, generational working class families. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they were, it, it, it's not an accident that, that the building of this park impacted that community. Like just, thinking about leveling a community uh, with 
little to no regard for the you know displacement of these people. It's not going to happen on the rich side of town. It's not. Right. Um, or on the white side of town. Right. Right. And so I didn't understand that. I was like nine or ten years old, so mm-hmm. I didn't really understand what we were doing, but I understood that it was important to my mother's my mother's also PhD trained. She wasn't at that point, but she is now. And what's her training in? Uh, educational policy. Oh, that's fantastic. So I'm okay. a second gen okay. PhD. Okay. And so uh, my mother ac- acutely understood, probably from her parents, um, that you need to use whatever you have to help other folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's been a constant thread throughout my life and career. Um, and so when we were going to disrupt these planning meetings, uh, I thought it was going to be kind of fun, but when they escorted us out, <laughs> I thought mother was going to be arrested. <laughs> I was like, they're going to arrest us. Um, so it was a little, you know, my mother w- at that point was a, a spitfire. She, it sounds like she it. wasn't, you know, she'll tell you what it is. Um, but in a way that's accessible to many constituencies. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what I emulated. I think, I think you'll see that Mm -hmm. uh, in my life and work uh, somewhere for people like, why are you like this? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm like, you say, well, all you have to do is look back to this (laughs) point here. Yeah. But a lot of people don't know that about me. Mm -hmm. Um, I was like literally born into all this stuff. That that's that. Before you ever get into the science and the career stuff, that that's so true though. For so many people, it's it's good that you can recognize what helped to shape you into the person you are outside of your career. I don't think I don't think that that very many people have either the desire to look into that from different backgrounds. Some people just want to. Hey, this is where I am now, and I, right. I don't need to think about any of that. But also, um, you know, the insight to look into that and be aware of it, because that can that can get you more in touch with with what motivates you, what helps you to be fulfilled. And then when the career thing does come into it, it can help guide you into doing something that that not only is beneficial to other people and will put food on the table but is also enriching to you based on what motivates you and who you are. Man, I should have you write my uh, tenure dossier. I got you. <laughs> you. You've got my card. <laughs> okay, so 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 you 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 came from from a background where you're where you were right sidekicking with your mom. Yeah. Um organizing, influencing change, advocating for people and for those who know about athletic training, at least, especially if you have a sports background already and you're around that and you're fascinated by movement, the poetry of motion, yeah, you know, um, um, maybe as, as Bruce Lee would say, as we were talking about earlier, right, the economy and the poetry of motion, yeah, um, then it makes sense because athletic training is a, a very selfless job. Um, it is. Um, it's more than just a job, of course, because people who do it, you don't make a whole heck of a lot of money. Um, and there's there's little to no glory you know there's it's you're behind the scenes but you're helping people that need the help so so you got into athletic training that's what you originally went to school for so i kind of fell into athletic training um 
because it was a way to bridge science and movement. I didn't know that it existed before college. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was like, oh, there's an actual science to studying how people move. Sign me up. Um, Athletic training was, oh, I can do this and be around sports. Sign me up. Mm -hmm. Um, I wasn't sure where I was going to go with that, but I knew that my I've had a lifelong interest in science as well. Um, since I was five, running through the this huge replica of the heart at the Museum of Science and Industry. Um, and I've been I've been in this science game for a while. I don't <laughs> think people I think people are shocked when that when the, and my mother and I were just talking about this. Uh, she put me in situations to you know be exposed to science. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, I did a math and science camp. I did, uh, I did a internship at, or like a summer internship at Argonne National Labs, um, the summer of my freshman year. So I've been in the science game for a minute and I, I just really found that kinesiology bridged all of my interests. Mm -hmm. The only problem with it is, is that there were five black people (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in the program <laughs> out of how many like a hundred and something oh, at the man. time oh, man. and i was the only black person or person of color in the athletic training program at the time oh, wow. uh, which was a really life-changing experience having come from chicago mm-hmm. uh, i learned a lot about well society outside of major cities um I understood what black really meant outside of the context of a city or my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, this signal, this signifies difference in some way. And usually it's it's associated with a difference that's that has a negative connotation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you're different, but it's not good. <laughs> did you did you find when um, and, and for there may be people listening who aren't familiar with what an athletic trainer does. So I'll summarize really quick before this question, but essentially you um, would work in conjunction with sports teams and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this is just as I understand it, um, work in conjunction with sports teams. Um, they're used at all kinds of levels now. As a matter of fact, around here, the graduate athletic training students are all placed in, in high schools around here. So okay. if you had gone and played basketball here, you would have known exactly what an athletic trainer was mm-hmm. from a pretty young age. Um, but you, you essentially treat and rehabilitate athletic injuries within the context of that sport yes. before and after practice. You give them exercises to do. Yep. Uh, when, when an acute event happens, you know, somebody goes for a, a, a layup, comes down, rolls her ankle. You got to call the athletic trainer. You're the one that comes out. Yep. Did you find that when you were going through your training, that because you were black, because you were the only one in the program, um, did you find that there was a, a bias in how people, I, I mean, I assume that when you're going through training, you work on each other, you practice these things, uh, you know, whether it's wrapping or taping or or whatever, um, in treatment on your the rest of your cohort, mm-hmm. did you get experience that early with some of the reactions and the, um, I guess, I don't want to say bias, but but mm-hmm. some of that with with even with your classmates at that point. Um, I think uh, 
there's a probably a whole nother story for a whole nother day about this one classmate who I thought was a total jerk, but ended up being a really powerful ally. But um, I felt it more from the director of the program. Mm. Um, some of the athletic trainers of the sports teams, um, they were just culturally ignorant. Um, and we've had, you know, opportunities over the years uh, at different points in time to, to discuss that after I heal from the trauma. But, um, <laughs> I, um, I think we were, I was able to learn and find people who wanted to teach me how to be good at taping and bracing mm -hmm. and, uh, Form, formulating a treatment plan for a high-level athlete. We were I, I covered football. I covered um, women's track and field, wrestling, swimming, uh, cheerleading, uh, mm -hmm. which was probably the hardest one. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that people had a, an investment in me being good at this for whatever reason. Um, and I was able to find those people, but I was so consumed with the voices that didn't want me mm -hmm. to win. And I, I think to my own detriment, um, I should have paid more attention to these other folks. Yeah. And But when you're young, you, you don't know. Hey, that's, um, that, that's human nature anyway, though. Yeah. I'll tell you, looking at, for example, um, you know, teacher evaluations, mm. you know, I, I love them because it gives you good feedback. Any, any, anybody who teaches, if, if you don't care what anybody else has to say about it, then you're probably not being the best teacher you can be. Right. So every semester we get these evaluations. Now, right now I'm all research. I don't do any teaching, but you know, from your anatomy class or your physiology class or exercise script or whatever, at the end of the semester, you, you get scored and you can see how you stack up against the department or the camp, you know, the campus wide, but then there are the comments. Yeah. And I tell you, for me, I can, I, I connect with what you're saying because yes, I would share, you know, if somebody says, Oh, this is the, you know, you're my favorite team. And I, you know, I was a TA for most of this, those classes. I wasn't even their main professor. Um, I said, you're, you're my favorite professor. So, and they're like, you know, sophomores or juniors. They've right. had plenty of professors and the TA is their favorite so far. It's like, well, yeah, those are the ones you show off to your friends. But you can have 10 of those and you get that one comment. Oh, man, he whatever. And yeah. It's just, you know, just like knife right in your chest kind of thing. So I understand that, especially when you take it away from not what you're doing, but who you are, <laughs> your right. identity. I, I think it's got a sting. Yeah. I mean, I came from, so I went to Whitney Hung High School. Uh, shout out to my fellow Dolphins. Uh -huh. um, and Michelle Obama, that is an alumna of that school as wow. well. Um, and so she chronicles a little bit of the culture of the school in her book, Becoming. Love that book. Um, she spent more words on that than her time at Harvard, which I thought was interesting. But <laughs> It, it captured the essence of what it was like to be there. It was majority um, black and brown and indigenous kids mm -hmm. who were very smart mm -hmm. <laughs> around. So it was nothing to to think of folks as being very smart. Right. And then I go to central Illinois, 
with some farm kids that have, some of whom had never seen a black person before me or a, a athlete or something. Mm-hmm. And there's this culture clash and this constant reminder, not just from students, but professors, TAs, that you're, you are the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I was not used to that. I was, I wasn't necessarily, you know, top of the top head of the class or whatever. I mean, I did all right, but I was never really told in the ways that I, uh, uh, the messages that I received weren't as overt Mm -hmm. until I got to Illinois. Mm -hmm. Um, And I learned a lot about life and how to, to cope or not cope. Mm -hmm. Um, But I still finished. (laughs) I still did it because I, you know, I loved sports and science. Mm And so, I mean, I thought about quitting at each stage of my career, what, maybe 10, 15 times. Um, It's the stuff that people don't talk about, but it's real, right? It's real. Yeah, I was going to quit, but it was two black women athletic trainers. They were already certified. Mm -hmm. One was at Michigan State. One was at Central Michigan. They're like, don't do it. Don't quit. I was like, all right. So I I finished. Well, I had my kid. Then got my degree mm-hmm. um, and uh, went on to practice in a high school after after some time. Mm-hmm. Um, went on to practice in a high school in South Carolina. So I moved to South Carolina. Okay. And how uh, long did you spend as an athletic trainer? Uh, I, I was certified for maybe 10 years, but I practiced for like three before going to to okay. PT school. What what drove that change to PT school? I caught, know, you, I caught you in no, a bad no, time. No, 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 it's okay. No, it's... <laughs> For those who are listening, w- sorry to interrupt, but because some of our audience will watch the YouTube and some will just listen on, on their podcast. And, and uh, Erica and I came by way of the coffee shop on the way up. So got her some tea. I got my coffee. So mm-hmm. I... Like like the veteran podcast host I am, waited until she was about to take a sip of her tea and then ask her a question. So anyway, please. Okay, so the question was, oh, what prompted the yeah, change? Yeah, what drove you to PT? Um, so in South Carolina, um, so this is back in 2002 to 2005. Um, they were very – you know, into the gender roles and, mm-hmm. you know, segregation wasn't as prominent in terms of, you know, how people treated me anyway, mm-hmm. but it was still kind of there. Uh, so, so when they see this young woman who doesn't look much older than the athletes running mm-hmm. out there, people are like, well, what are you doing? <laughs> um, I'm the only woman on the sidelines for a time before I had two students helping me. Mm-hmm. And I would tell them, and they would do the the thing that always happens when you tell people you're a rehab professional. Mm-hmm. Oh, my knee hurts. Oh, my shoulder hurts. Or, or you know, run through this litany of problems and right, the musculoskeletal right. problems they have. <laughs> and so me, callously, when I look back on it, it's like, well, well, why don't you see somebody about that? And and they're like, well, the nearest clinic is like 30 miles away. What am I, you know, what am I going to do? Go there three to five times a week, back and forth. And that sparked an interest in serving broader populations. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm like, this skills, I have the foundational skills. I can just upskill 
myself in many ways at the time because mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I, athletic training and PT were quite separate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, not as much anymore, but that's what sparked the move to PT school um, because I thought I needed to serve a broader population. And honestly, when my kids were starting to get older, I'm like, I can't be out on the road and have these, you know, 60, 80 hour work weeks. Right, because you had to travel as an athletic trainer, yeah. you travel with the team on away, away yeah. games and stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was going to have a shelf life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So with the kids, you mentioned your first, this is undergrad ish? Yeah. So Jade, Jade uh, started existing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, my senior year of college. Okay. All right. Um, All right. And that was a whole, so I've done to, to the listeners out there, I've done everything like backwards or different. <laughs> I'm um, not sure there is such a thing to be honest with you. Not anymore. So I did all that first, but, um, so Jade came along the fall semester. I, I took an extra semester. Um, so it was a fall semester of my senior year. And then I, I was a January graduate. So, and Jay was born in January. So, um, I got my degree officially uh, four or five days after Jay was born. Mm. So, I was 23. And then her, their their brother, they're non-binary, um, their brother, Jared, um, came two years after that. So, um, going to PT school was not a small deal in terms of the logistics of having support for the to help raise them they were four and six at the time um and then you know going through this rigorous and demanding curriculum at mayo clinic and i left the cell and you have (laughs) yeah you have an undergraduate degree and three graduate degrees correct or is the athletic training an undergraduate at the time yeah, I've got an undergraduate in Kines mm-hmm. with a concentration in athletic training, okay. and then I've got two doctors. Okay. And so DPT and PhD. Yes. That's a sizable commitment in time. And of all of that time as a student, you got three years as a as a student that was not also a parent at the same time? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Look, that makes anything that you did in education <laughs> – that much more impressive because I can't imagine. I like I, I was telling y'all earlier. I, uh, this is gonna be my shout out to my puppy too. In post production, we'll, we'll put a picture <laughs> of her up. Right, pup. shout out to Hadley, named after my hometown in Michigan. But uh, anyhow, uh, yeah, I'm right now over the past couple of months. Uh, you know, I'm I'm turning gray trying to raise this puppy while you know <laughs> writing papers and and doing this and that. And I can't imagine raising kids while going through grad school, <laughs> particularly clinical. Yeah. disciplines as well um that's wild that's that's yeah. very wild well i had support that that was the more that was the most important component of my career trajectory mm-hmm. i had the support of my parents and as the kids got older and were getting involved in more activities um particularly in st louis uh people would say oh i i'll pick up and drop off and I would be like, okay, for the next game, I'll do that, or I'll bring this snacks, these snacks, and 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 for a single parent, that there's no greater joy than when people offer to help do little what what may be in many people's minds little stuff like that. 
um, because that helps lessen the cognitive burden of trying to figure out the logistics of being a parent while you know meeting the demands of this curriculum. It also took communication and honesty about my priorities with uh, the folks. Uh, I had to do interviews for these programs. And I told, I was very transparent. I said, my children are always going to come first. Um, that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily exclude me uh, as a candidate because I'm going to get it done right? because that's who I am. But I'm never going to choose this job over my kids or my parents. Mm. Um, and if y'all are okay with that, let's, let's, let's get to it. work. Let's yeah. get to work. All right. And so Mayo Clinic, I applied to two PT schools. <laughs> That's it, just two. No, three. Okay. Three. Or was it two? Two or three, but it wasn't like a Not like people list. do now, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Because first of all, I couldn't afford all that. And um, I was geographically limited to where my support system was. And so my mother was living in Decorah, Iowa, which is a, a town in Northeast Iowa, where Luther College is. She was the executive director of the diversity center at the time. So I, she helped me with the kids while I was schlepping back and forth to Rochester, Minnesota, which is like 75 miles north of there. So that is pivotal. This, that's a pivotal part of my whole career path is the support. But you know what? There's some, there's some commonalities though. When you talk about when you talk about the the time that you spent with your mother in advocacy and in in and uh, in community planning and 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 trying to do things within your community, that's a form of support in and of itself. Yes. And it's 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 really neat to see. Neat seems so underwhelming of a descriptor, but it's fascinating for me to see an example of someone who grew up in an element where you were constantly, even if it was just, you know, at first following the shadow of your mom and doing what mom was doing, but, but giving of yourself to, to support others. And now you get to a point where you could really use some support and it's there for you as well. And, And that kind of, whether you want to think of it as reciprocity or culture uh, that that environment, that culture, that that idea that it's not I'm gonna get mine and, and good luck kind of thing. No, you never. know, th- I think we I think we could use more of that. I can say the same thing throughout throughout my education. Yeah. Um, I mean, throughout my life, of course, I, I come from a, a very supportive family, and and you know, obviously, people who are are that way tend to attract other people who are that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I wouldn't be anywhere close to where I am without. I, no. The list is long. It's not limited to my family, you know, my mentors and my professors. And um, there are people who I, I just I wish everybody were so fortunate to, to have that kind of um, yeah. that culture, that environment to, to come up in. You know, it was very much the culture of. You know, the 4700 block of Adams. <laughs> Shout <laughs> out again. <laughs> it was, you know, people knew I was on this path. My well, first of all, my parents let them know. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Um, but people were on board with me. They knew I was going to college. They knew mm-hmm. I was playing basketball. They, they knew I was 
on this path mm -hmm. and created safe spaces in places where there sometimes were very unsafe spaces. Mm -hmm. They created a safe space and and provided safe passage for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that that was a very common theme in communities like that in my family. Like we we know we have a goal. We want you know the each generation to move further than the last. And what do we need to do to do that? Right. Um, and everybody was very much on board. And it was how I was raised. Um, so it didn't. It seems a foreign concept to me. Um, you do have to set appropriate boundaries. Of course. But, you know, good luck, Chuck. It was <laughs> not part of my socialization yeah. really at all. Yeah. But that that's reflected later. And, and to, to move on with the, the PT phase of your career yeah. you you wanted to do that yeah. to to support and and make resources and treatment available to people so that yeah. was in part a selfless move but i also like the fact that you were upfront in saying okay well this is what's important to me i will get what's important to you done but it's not going to be at the cost of this and if right. we find that middle ground i'll help you you facilitate me being a parent and it's all going to come out all right. And so you're able to do that. So now we're at the point where you're a PT. Yeah. But you didn't end there. Nope. Otherwise, you you wouldn't be sitting here. Not that I don't speak with PTs. <laughs> uh, you know, I just did actually on one of our last episodes. But yeah. um, but you didn't stop there. You, you no. were compelled to, to move on to academia in the form of research. Yeah. What? Uh, how, first of all, how long were you a PT before you made that change? Uh, well, I went... Uh, straight into a PhD from the DPT program, okay. and I practiced for a few months um, as a per diem uh, PT um, during, like, my first year of the PhD. So was there something, was there an influence throughout getting the DPT that said, oh, actually, you know what, this is great and all, and I'm going to finish what I start because that's what I do. It right. seems like that's, that's mm -hmm. what I'm getting from you. But I need to go on and do this. So we... We had a research uh, capstone project. Um, many DPT programs have that requirement. Um, and so we were looking at uh, the, the responsiveness of gait velocity in older adults after acute um, hip or uh, acute hip fracture repair okay. or f fixation. I don't know. Word finding. Um, <laughs> and so when and, you say the responsiveness of, of gait velocity. Yeah. So we were looking at the minimal detectable change or the the, the threshold, which you could say um, if they reach, in this case, 0.8 meters per second, that would be seen as a clinically meaningful or, or a significant improvement beyond measurement error. I see. And so. As I, a result of the surgery, as a as result a, of the hip well, replacement. Yeah, so after, in the acute phases, because mm -hmm. people had studied the chronic, um, right. but this was, the novelty of this was looking at it uh, within the acute phases of healing from surgery. Okay. Okay. Um, and that was my first publication. Uh, I was a middle author on that. But I, I was always kind of questioning the evidence around some of the interventions we were doing. Um, and... This just seemed to be a way of, of getting at that. We weren't really presented with other pathways to a research career. The PhD was 
you know, kind of it at the time. So I was like, all right. I mean, uh, there was a bit of a time limit. So at this point, my kids are nine and 11 or something like that. And so I'm like, if I'm going to pursue another terminal degree, then I need to do it while they're young. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, so that, that was what influenced the decision to go do the PhD right after the DPT. Okay. Okay. And in the focus of your PhD, as you went on, did you go into that with a very specific idea of this is this is what I want to study, this is what my dissertation is going to be, or I'm getting the notion that it may have been like some of the rest of these life events where it's like, well, this is what's in front of me, and yeah. and we're gonna, we're gonna figure like, it out as right. we go. <laughs> and they asked me that, I was like, I don't really know, but this sounds interesting. I like I like gate. I like. Well, uh, I like understanding how to measure walking, but beyond that, I don't know much. <laughs> um, it's like my dad says on road trips, like, <laughs> man, I don't know where we're going, but we're making good time, <laughs> right? It's kind of like, all right, yeah. you know? <laughs> right. yeah. And I, that's a running theme when we go through my the rest of my career. You'll hear that. It's like, the same, man. All right. But... <laughs> there, there's there is something to that though. You 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 mentioned, and I don't know if you've said this on on the podcast so far, but in in your presentation earlier, and I have this is something that doesn't occur often with our guests, but not immediately prior to this, but just before I got to sit through your presentation and hear about your work and hear about your background. So, mm-hmm. um, but one of the things that you you said is, well, you know, maybe I'm what you would consider a, a non traditional or or. Um, you know, atypical path throughout this. And it's becoming less non-traditional nowadays. I think people are realizing that, well, you, there there's not a backwards way or a wrong way to do it. But I'm in, I've, I've done things in a similar way, not as diverse or as impressive as your path, mind you. <laughs> However, there's been very much a, well, this is what I'm doing right now. And over the course of doing that, I've found more about what I want to do next. Yeah. I, in some ways, I envy, you know, I have, I have peers and, you know, friends from school. That, and when I say school, I mean, like, you know, middle school, junior high, that knew what they wanted to do. That's, you know, that, that was their interest in their hobbies throughout high school. That's what they went to college for. That's what they got a degree in, and they're still doing it. Right. Fascinated by that. I can't fathom it. And I can tell you right now, that's not for me. Right. Um, well, I, I think. So I've been in rehab, though, this whole time. Mm-hmm. So there is a stick-to-itiveness. I do have, um, I do think that rehab is the way to go. Like, I'm not going to stop caring about movement and right. how right. to optimize that. Sure. I mean, um, there's a, there's an overriding theme with me as well. I understand that. But I think when we talk about the the non-traditional and traditional path and this is this was one of the platforms i ran on with with the usasp um elections which i'm still shocked by that but and then congrats on the it's a board position yes? yeah the board congratulations on that next month right. so um but people people recognize that there are these different paths um career paths for phds uh, for people who might not want necessarily a PhD as a terminal degree, but want degree, but want a career in research, but the larger community still um, evaluates people with grants, uh, for example, based on this traditional model. Right. Right. And so when I say 
you know, my productivity was slower because I was raising my kids. Mm -hmm. Um, people like, Oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And I think that that does a disservice to folks who, who were taking care, who were caretaking in a different capacity sure. or who or something or were ill or something, even though you write that down, do people consider that, you know, part of your career, an, an enriching part of your career path mm -hmm. as opposed to something that was a detriment to right. it? And so I, I really want to advocate for people in these early career talks and all of that stuff, which frame these ideas around, you know, how to advance your career in this traditional model mm -hmm. to, to look outside of that and say, you know, what has your life experience, your lived experiences as a dot, 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 uh, brought to your career and how can you leverage that to move forward? I think some of the, the best developmental sculpting or advice or mentoring that, that people can get at a younger age is, is the ability to have that perspective of, okay, well, I have my experiences and to a large degree, who I am is made up of those experiences. Yes. Now, I can look back at them and say, well, these were positive and these were negative, but all of them in some way, shape, or form have led you to where you are now and have developed your skill set, Yeah. right? And so, yeah, the fact that you were raising kids or whatever the case may be, whatever it was, if you as a person at least – have somebody along the way that can, I guess, encourage the perspective of looking at your skill set, of, of having you look at your skill set and say, these are my experiences and these are why I'm going to be good at fill in the blank. Yeah. That may be just as important, if not more important than the actual degrees or jobs or experiences that follow because you have to be able to do that you have to be able to look at what you can and cannot do can't do it objectively really but but mm -hmm. at least you know take a step back yeah. and and not look at those things as negative it may have been a negative experience but how is it positive in shaping you who you are you know that, absolutely I, th I think that's huge I, I think that's where i'm where i am now yeah. i think i have the first of all the mental space to do it I'm obviously in a different position than I was as a, as a trainee. Mm -hmm. Um, so I have some, some levels of privilege that I didn't have before, right. um, a platform or set of platforms that I didn't have before. Um, and I've been thinking very carefully about what, you know, how to use those platforms. Do you have doctoral students of your own just yet? Um, not working directly with me as their primary mm -hmm. but I do I'm on a couple of committees and I've been advising a couple postdocs mm -hmm. and undergrads they're fortunate that's good that's good so you got into the research we, we talked about this this recent appointment to to the board of the so the USASP for those who don't know is the U.S. Association for the Study of Pain and this is a uh, a body that um that offers membership, but it's a collaboration. We have there, there are, I, I'm a member as well. Um, and I don't sit on the board though. <laughs> um, but there, you know, there's an annual conference, there's, there's career development, there's networking. Um, and, and so, uh, 
you've gotten this position on the board. You've recently um, developed a, a K. Now, has your proposal been approved? You got your you getting your funding soon? And um, it's in review. Okay, so your K is under review. So these these are big milestone points along the way. We've we've worked on the build up to this, but where you are now, and you have a number of publications. You talk about um, your productivity and and things that have affected your productivity. But looking at what you've done, and you know whether it's as a primary or as part of it, there's there's definitely a, a theme that's a continuation of what you've been talking about. You know for the past half hour, 45 minutes, or however long we've been talking about it, yeah. that, that shows up in your work now. And, and am I correct in saying that there's a duality to that work? There is, there is the scientific aspect still. There is the yes. question. There's, there's the kinesiology, the fascination with movement, the fascination with answering the questions. But on the other side of that coin, there's still very much the, I guess, the, the, the motivation of, of giving again, of supporting, of of looking to perhaps underrepresented or or understudied populations, um, and right down to people um, that that drive your work now. Is that is that a correct characterization? Um, yeah, I think it's it's in the advocacy realm, um, and I resisted that for a while. Why? Because because I wasn't very smart, but I, I think in all seriousness, I'm actually quite brilliant. <laughs> I was, I was going to let that hang there. Cause I knew, I knew that you're pulling my leg. Come on now. Um, but I wanted to, I wanted people to respect my science irrespective of who I was studying. Mm -hmm. It's like, I'm a good scientist. Mm -hmm. I need you to recognize that I can execute a project, um, interpret data and tell a story from it. Um, but then I would always go back to, you know, well, what's, how, what was the what were the demographics of the population that you mm -hmm. studied? Did you consider this cultural nuance? So I kept going back to that. And then I was like, well, why do I have to be the black person studying? Like, <laughs> do you feel that there's a negative, uh, I don't know, connotation or view of being a person of color? Okay, you're a scientist, you're accomplished, you, you are well-trained, you've demonstrated that you have this ability. But if people look at you and see that there's also an advocacy component, do you feel that, that in, in the eyes of some people that detracts from your work? Is that what you're saying? And like no. I said, in the eyes of some people, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not saying no, that that's it. No, I think it's, you can study, you're a good scientist when you're studying these groups. Mm -hmm. This group that, one of whom you are a part of. Right. But if I was studying mice or something, and there's scientists who are having trouble getting funding, black and brown indigenous folks, um, who may not be studying race-related stress or other uh, physiological mechanisms of pain or other di uh, diseases, but they're having trouble getting funding, like those persistent gaps in uh, research project grants between, you know, white groups and, and other groups mm -hmm. is, is still there. Mm -hmm. And it's like these scientists, don't they don't necessarily have to study uh, 
you know, people of color, if they don't want to, to be recognized for the rigor and impact of their science. Mm -hmm. And I find that a lot of people do that unintentionally, uh, but the impact of it is the same. And I didn't want to go through that, but when I, the, when I came to myself, it was really during the pandemic where I had to say, you know, this is a value that you have. Mm -hmm. You need to align it with your science because your science is not going to feel authentic to you until you do that. Like, yeah, I put out this body of work, but I, I did it because I could do it. Now I'm doing it because I feel like I need to do it. Yeah, there it is. That's yeah. that that authenticity that you said. I think that's the way to say it. Yeah. That's what I was getting at earlier of, yeah. of trying to to assimilate who yeah. you are with what you do yeah. to get I, the best product. That's it. That I just wasn't that doing authenticity. It. I just wasn't doing it well. And it was it was coming out in some of those early grants. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, I can I can write words on a page and and you know, put you know, some references there and, and talk about a conceptual model. But you know when somebody, you can read and feel when somebody really is passionate about whatever it is. And it, it going back and reading through all those grants that didn't get funded or didn't get discussed or whatever, um, in the moment you're, like, really mad. <laughs> like, what the hell? But... Uh, going back, I, I wrote a R61, R33, a $4 million grant. And mm -hmm. I was like, you know, they shouldn't have given me that money because I wasn't feeling this mm -hmm. topic mm -hmm. that they should give me $4 million for five years for. The passion wasn't there. It just wasn't. Yeah. It was interesting question sure. and fun. and But do I want to spend five years doing this? Mm -hmm. um, and I think having questions like that in your mind as a person and as a researcher is important. So how have you applied that now to your K? Tell everybody a little bit about this, this upcoming project, fingers crossed, upcoming yep. project and how it, it, it helps to lend that authenticity of, of what makes you who you are and applying it to the skill set of what you do. So, um, thank you for bringing that up. So I am interested in the intersections of race and body type. Um, so racial disparities and obesity related disparities and how that plays out in chronic widespread pain. Uh, so that the way I define that is pain at at least three places on the body um, for at least three months or okay. longer. Okay. And so I think that people, I think it's a level of advocacy in terms of, you know, the health disparity space and all that, that doesn't really get as much airtime, mm -hmm. obesity related disparities. Sure, sure. So there are these huge uh, disproportionate burdens of pain and other stuff. And I think that, um, People know about these things, but there's really not, there's advocacy from, you know, the fat community. Mm -hmm. It is a community and a culture mm -hmm. um, that 
you know, have been in the literature and I want to elevate those voices as I know, as I come to find out who they are. But I just feel like in the healthcare space, it leads to, you know, lack of health utilization. People don't want to come and see us as PTs, docs or whatever at all, because they're constantly told to lose weight for everything, mm-hmm. um, irrespective of the mechanism. Right. So this project um, is an ex- it's kind of is an extension of the work that uh, you heard about earlier, where we're just looking at how manipulating rapid weight loss or, or weight loss or weight through bariatric surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, Explain bariatric surgery just really quickly yeah. for those who don't know. I'm sorry. So no, ba- no. Bariatric please. surgery is um, a a procedure that is designed to induce. Uh, quick and significant weight loss it's um it's in it's part of the med it's it's a medical management intervention we could edit out all these ums and ahs that i'm doing no Um, no chance (laughs) it's a medical it's a medical management strategy um where if lifestyle modification or more conservative um management of weight fails people or interdisciplinary teams will prescribe bariatric surgery. Um, There are multiple types. Um, Most of them are laparoscopic. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the goal is the goal. And what often happens is people lose at least 20% of the weight uh, that they have pre-surgery and some, some keep it off and some might regain it. These are things like, like gastric bypass and stuff like that. Yeah. Gastric bypass. Um, so there's the ruin Y gastric bypass. There's the vertical sleeve gastrectomy where they actually resect the stomach or the sleeve gastrectomy. I should stop saying vertical, um, where they actually resect the stomach and then gastric banding and among other things. Resect is in take part of the stomach out. They cut the stomach into like a third of it's like a third of your stomach or something like that. So that's, yeah, this is going to sound stupid, but just to be clear, that's not reversible. Like some of the, the bands and stuff like that, that's reversible, right? Yeah. The band is, uh, is adjustable. Okay. Um, but more people opt for the, so the ruin why is like the gold standard that's okay. been studied the most, uh, that yields the most, uh, robust, uh, improvement in cardiovascular risk, diabetes, stuff like that. Um, but the vertical sleeve is less, uh, somehow less invasive. I'm not exactly sure okay. why, but uh, people that people are opting to to use or to uh, undergo that procedure um, more, mm-hmm. particularly in the clinics that I work with. Interesting. All right, with this, and this is a question I wanted to ask earlier. You had given some pretty interesting statistics on. Behavioral interventions, for example. Yeah. Hey, you're carrying you're carrying too much weight. You go to your doctor. Your doctor says, "Look," uh, and and this is not speaking on some of the examples you gave. Some some really insightful examples of what people had said, and people specifically patients who yeah. had sought health care yeah. for uh, an earache, <laughs> for back pain following a car accident where there's clearly impact trauma to their back, and the answer was. You need to lose weight. Right. That now I, I do want to ask this in the in these cases before I get I'm you know what before I start ask my first question I'm going to go on to this one. In in the cases here, there are clearly 
there's clearly documentation and there's a, a lot of literature that that demonstrates that in this country we have an obesity problem now i love the fact that you're looking at how different races are affected by that problem in the same way that we do pain there's a lot of disparity in how people experience pain well it turns out there are differences in in different racial communities as well when you look at those subgroups uh with regard to obesity yes how does that break down first how how are, how are different groups affected by this who's who's affected the most and and i already know the answer to the to the least and i was really interested in in these data but but break it down for us um so and this was data that I got from the CDC. Okay. Um, and so when you disaggregate the data based on race, at least in that investigation, um, as a whole, irrespective of gender, they're black and non-Hispanic black, um, Hispanic Latinx folks um, are disproportionately affected by obesity. So the percentages of folks who self-report as being obese is higher um, than uh, non-Hispanic white folks and the Asian American Pacific Islander community or AAPI. Um, I, I, it's interesting. I think I, I, be, I should delve more into the the criteria for the AAPI community mm -hmm. because I think that that lends itself to a missing a disparity in that community mm -hmm. because the criteria are just they're, they're just not meeting the criteria but for them they could actually be meeting a different type of criteria because I, I will that. say um, in looking at the, the the data that you presented there were clearly significant differences between um, you know, non-Hispanic whites. Yeah. Uh, um, but when when you look at the Asian American Pacific Islander, there that was a huge difference. Yeah. Huge difference. Signi you know, significantly lower. And yeah. I don't mean significant in a, in a statistical standpoint. I mean, when you look at this graph, and we'll probably plug this in here. When you look at this graph, the 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 Asian Pacific Islanders much much lower um, incidence of obesity. Yeah, but I think some of that, so there's a, you know, there's a call to, you know, a BMI is a cr very crude measure. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows that, but people continue to use that. Um, it makes it easy for insurance it's, companies. It's easier to, and people around the world can do it. Mm -hmm. Like it's a low tech, but there are other, there are other um, ways that you can measure fatness, thinness, muscularity. Mm -hmm. You, you're, you know many of those techniques sure. uh, through your training and research. But I think that these disparities, you know, big picture, they're disparities um, that disproportionately affect communities of color. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you disaggregate that data based on, gen further disaggregate that data based on gender, so now you're looking at the intersection and intersectional identities of race and gender and how that um, plays out in terms of the prevalences um, in that particular data set the prevalence for black women was way higher mm -hmm. than all of the other racial groups of women mm -hmm. and all of the other racial groups of men hmm. right so I think that's that speaks to 
the importance of looking at you know these inner the the intersectional identities of people we're more than just a race we're more than just a gender we have all other identities that are subject to multiple systems of oppression yeah we all stand in the middle of our own venn diagram right right? (laughs) so i i think and obesity is no different so what's the the relationship um and we don't have a whole lot of time to talk about this um and blame blame your rich background um, for that. I've <laughs> no I, I was way too interested in that to move on from it. Um, That's okay. Just means you have to come back. <laughs> and, you know, especially have especially when it's raining in New York and it's you know, know in the mid seventies down here. Yeah, Please, I'm, I'm here for it. <laughs> I'm here for it. Um, but so you talk about intersections now. What's the relationship between obesity and pain? Because that that's another. It just throws another wrench in the system, right? Um, that that you have to, you speak of disaggregating, that's another covariant that that affects this population um, and it's all of its subgroups. How, what's the relationship there? Yeah, so if we're talking about Venn diagrams, you know, we see this intersection of, of um, you know, obesity and chronic pain. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen that for many years, right? And people in the beginning we're really focused on be you know look, looking at BMI and modeling you know predictors of whatever the health condition and BMI is a you know variable independent variable to put in there but for me there were always there there was a relationship but it was always not very strong to me so mm-hmm. that to me indicated that there's the some there's something else right. and so I was thinking of just looking at folks in this this state where they're at their heaviest, but I'm like, if the oppor- there's an opportunity to work with um, a group where they were, you know, bariatric surgery clinic as part of the the um, group, mm-hmm. and so I'm like, if we can manipulate weight in this way, I'm not necessarily advocating for weight loss as a singular pain intervention. I right. don't think that right, right. that's right. And but if we can manipulate weight in this way, mm-hmm. um, we can truly say, is it is it really weight loss, or is it something else we can be intervening upon? Right. Well, it's 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 a unique model to use, and that's one thing I I hope people listening and following along understand that that there are aspects of the human condition, if you will, that, that vary between groups and demographics. Uh, and, and while that's the main interest, there may be something that comes along, a model that comes along that you can, that you can look at changes uh, in, in those groups, and it makes it really easy. So, for example, if we're talking about um, you know, how somebody walks, and well, how, what, what is the effect of, of having a, a, a bum hip on how they walk? Well, if you go into a community where you can look at people who are suffering from hip pain, um, you know, osteoarthritis, osteoporosis, whatever, and look at them pre and post surgery, something that not instantaneously, but very quickly changes the conditions with which yes. they use whatever then you can use that model to look at how important those conditions are. And so in your case, this bariatric surgery provides that opportunity because you're talking about just a span of months, right? The weight loss that somebody like me, 
I've got I've got to shed some weight. I'm not saying I'm obese, not not obese, but I've got to shed some weight. So when I work at it, I, I look at, you know, okay, well, I can do X amount of weight in X amount of months or however long. But you're talking about a very significant, a large substantive amount of weight. Looking at some of the graphs you presented earlier in three months, six months, and then peaking what at 12 or so where you're really within yeah. a year, really substantive, substantive amounts of weight loss. Yeah. And then look at how, well, when you were this weight or this level of obesity, if you, if, if that's your metric versus just six months later, what, what has changed with yes. relation to pain? And the, that's phenomenal in a group that's understudied. So there are yeah. people who are doing large bariatric surgery studies and they are chronicling self-reported pain. Um, they're chronicling function of uh, disease specific measures like the Womack. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is a population of black and brown folks we're, ch- we're targeting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did di- get the criticism from a reviewer and from a community member uh, when I presented this study to a community board. Well, well where are the white people <laughs> in this lab study? <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> you can go you, see it. You, 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 my friends know that when I get to a certain point, I don't laugh. I wheeze, and I was about a half a second from that. So, come on now, help, help me stay under control here. Where's the white? Where are the white people? Where, where are the white, white folk people? at? Um, but that was, I thought that was, uh, but that, yeah. I haven't gotten that, I'm, I'm not even close to being the only one that has gotten that criticism mm-hmm. of a study. Yeah. Um, now, is this something that, uh, not, not to be one of those people shouting where are the white people, but um, is, is this something that you think in the future, because this proposal, this project that you're, that you're proposing, five years? Yes. Okay. Once you, once you get these data and are able to look at, at the population you're looking at, then you can, of course, you said other people are looking within within this community and w- well, not within this community, but within uh, the bariatric surgery population within that sample. There are people who are already looking at, at yeah. white Americans. So mm-hmm. is it possible then once you have these data from your study to, to compare it then to their their work? Uh, I think that would save me a ton of money on the next <laughs> grant for sure. Um, I would really I feel like I've been so. NYU has a pretty robust Asian American health research um, apparatus, mm-hmm. and they they have done a really great job in raising awareness of these disparities. Um, that I don't I don't want to say that I ignore, but I haven't thought as uh, as about as much with intention and purpose as of course they do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would love to be more inclusive down the road, um, or maybe even now, I don't know. But I think these communities are underserved. Mm-hmm. I think fostering trust is a, is a big part of that. And I, this, is, this has been an exercise mainly in you know, understanding the pain phenotype of this cohort that I presented earlier, but um fostering trust it's like are you gonna come in here and then just leave with your accolades or are you gonna come in here and be a partner with us to get more data and and better understand uh, and add to the scientific rigor Mm -hmm. um but help us (laughs) right right (laughs) 
are you going to help Can us? Can you do both? But that's what people want to know, right? We see this in pain all the time yeah. in, in all populations. But it's a matter of, well, you're doing this research, but, but how's that help? How's that help me? What effect does that yeah. have on me? That's what people want to know. They do. And, and so the community engagement piece, mm-hmm. I'm very new to that. Um, not to engaging with communities, but in a, as a researcher and a representative of something that you're skeptical of. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> um, and in, in New York, I, you know, the thing that's great about New Yorkers, they, they're, they got a tough outer shell, but once you crack that shell, they're your friends for life. Mm. And so building that trust, even if it takes a while, once you have it, you have to take really good care of it. And I want to be, I want to do good science. I want to be recognized around the world for my science. I'm not, you know, I'm not ashamed to say that. But what good is that if I'm not helping the people I'm intending to help? And that's the part that I've been working very diligently on as as part of the project, but just as a researcher in general. It seems to me not to imply that you've done a number of about faces because you haven't. You, you've mentioned this thread that, that runs through the tapestry of who you are. But in a lot of ways, it seems like this is this is Erica Merriweather version 4.0 or so, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm captivated by it. I'm here for it. So thank you for coming in and spending the time. And uh, not everybody gets this invite, but I hope that somehow we can work it out, that you can come back down and visit again, because we, we have a ton of science that we can still talk about. And yes. I want to hear about this study. You know, one, th- There's no, I don't want to jinx anything, but, but this, this is a, a much needed area of research. Uh, uh, multiple subgroups within our, within our culture, within our, our, our country, that uh, that need the attention in this specific area and, and you've used the word intersect a number of times i think it's a, a perfect way to describe it um attention needs to be where you're putting it and so i hope that the powers that be at the nih uh you know put some money behind that attention and then when they do i want to hear about what you find well thank you so much for inviting me to participate it's been a wonderful conversation um it's been wonderful to be on the uf campus uh the weather's beautiful you got the best of it today i tell you (laughs) i love it all all right anybody listening along you know we've got a happy hour that i say is going to happen in a couple days and by the time you hear this it'll be two weeks past but you know figuratively uh you're all invited to to come down and (laughs) talk science with us (laughs) now in all seriousness uh thank you so much and i and i look forward to the opportunity to have you back on thank you so much Thank you for joining this episode of The Price of Pain. Opinions expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and guests and not representative of the University of Florida or parent institutions of our guests, unless specifically stated. You can find more information about Price on the World Wide Web at price.ctsi.ufl.edu. And keep up with our researchers on social media by searching Facebook for UF Price, by following at UF underscore pain on Twitter, and Price of Pain podcast, all one word, on Instagram.